there are two uh, trends in the law that suggest that that um, privacy law will not impose much of a hurdle to drone surveillance. One of them is the notion that you do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy as against the government um, in, in anywhere in public or viewable from a public vantage. And so if you're walking around the street in public, um, you could be observed by a drone uh, without implicating the Constitution. Um, and also if you were in your backyard. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from gorgeous Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrosi coming to you uh, out of Rockport, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and uh, also a blog called Media Law. Craig, you write a blog too, right? Yep, once in a while, called May It Please the Court. <laughs> I have a book out called How to Get Sued. And Bob, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsors, Clio, a web-based practice management software program for lawyers at goclio.com and PC Law by LexisNexis. For a free trial for PC Law, you can go to pclaw.com slash radio. Well, when we think of drones or unmanned aerial vehicles, we tend to think of them buzzing over places like Afghanistan and striking terrorist targets. However, on February 14, 2012, President Obama signed the Federal Aviation Administration Modernization and Reform Act into law. This act requires the FAA to allow others to fly drones, including law enforcement agencies, private companies, and even individual hobbyists over American neighborhoods by 2015. Some of the purported reasons for the law sound uh, fairly innocuous, uh, or or perhaps even logical. Uh, supposedly, the law was the uh, law was passed to help protect American citizens and protect public safety, uh, and even protect uh, the safety of the airways. Uh, but not everyone is buying this argument. Critics say this is another huge invasion of privacy and uh, just another way for. Big Brother to spy on us all. So uh, we're going to talk about the uh, implications of this law with uh, two experts uh, who are going to help us uh, evaluate it and talk about it. So let's bring them on right now. First of all, let me introduce uh, to the program Ryan Kahlo. Ryan is Director for Privacy and Robotics at the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School. Prior to joining uh, the law school in 2008, Ryan was an associate at Covington and Burling, where he advised companies on issues of data security, privacy, and communications. Ryan recently wrote a good uh, opinion piece for Wired uh, uh, titled Drones, Dogs, and the Future of Privacy. And uh, you can also follow Ryan on Twitter at uh, rkalos, R-C-A-L-O, on Twitter. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Ryan Kahlo. Thanks for having me. And Bob, our next guest is Jennifer Lynch. She is a staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Jennifer works on open government, transparency, and privacy issues as part of EFF's FOIA litigation for Accountable Government Project. That's FLAG, F-L-A-G. In addition to government transparency, Jennifer has written and spoken frequently on government surveillance programs, intelligence community misconduct, and biometrics collection. Welcome to the show, Jennifer. Thanks for having me. Well, Ryan, let's start with you, and uh, let's let's ask: Is this is this new law a, a threat to uh, threat to our privacy? I don't know that the new law um, is a threat to our privacy 
uh, per se, but I certainly think that there is a concern around the greater use of drones domestically, which is what this law, of course, facilitates. Um, and I think that threat comes primarily from uh, the lowering of the cost of surveillance, uh, particularly by the police, um, but, uh, but eventually by, by private entities, companies, and individuals. Um, and as the costs of surveillance go down, uh, we can expect that the incidence of the volume of surveillance uh, in turn goes up. And Jennifer, are these drones expected to be able to carry payloads beyond uh, cameras? I mean, you know, in Afghanistan, they're used to take out terrorist groups. Are we going to be seeing the same thing here? Are we going to start taking out gang members? (laughs) There have been proposals recently to add on payloads that that include certain types of weapons like tasers and um, beanbag pellets and stuff like that. Um, and I, I'm not sure how seriously law enforcement are considering that now. It's definitely one of the concerns. However, at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, we're more concerned with the surveillance aspects of drones at the moment. Drones are capable of carrying just about any type of surveillance technology that you could put on any other device. So cameras, like you mentioned, but also thermal imaging, um, the ability to intercept communications, whether those are wireless or text-based communications, um, the ability to have GPS tracking devices to track one or many subjects at a time. Um, and these devices, as Ryan said, are getting cheaper and cheaper. So for law enforcement with tight budgets um, right now, drones are, are seeming to make a lot of fiscal sense. Jennifer, I was surprised uh, as I as I looked into this uh, to realize that the FAA has already been authorizing drones, uh, and that I guess that means that drones are already flying over our country. I know, I know you've been involved in uh, FOIA litigation uh, with regard against the FAA to uh, uncover the details of these authorizations. Can you tell us about that? Sure. So we filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the FAA uh, over a year ago now, and we asked specifically for information on the FAA's authorization program. So the FAA is the sole entity in the federal government that um, issues authorizations to fly drones, and currently they issue authorizations just to public agencies and public universities. These include um, different parts of the federal government, like the FBI, the DOJ, Department of Justice, and um, the Department of Defense. Um, and they also include state and local law enforcement and, like I said, some public universities that are flying drones for research purposes. Um, currently, they're not issuing authorizations to commercial vendors um, to fly drones. Um, so we've been more, more concerned with the law enforcement use of drones. So we filed a, a FOIA request or a Freedom of Information Act request asking for information about the authorization program. And then when the FAA didn't respond to our request, we filed a lawsuit in January trying to get access to the records. And it's been an interesting process. The FAA is generally a pretty transparent organization, so you can get a lot of information from the agency about manned aircraft, regular airplanes, and who flies them and who's licensed to fly them and the tail numbers of those planes. But there hasn't been a lot of information available about unmanned aircraft. And and I think that that's a real problem, especially given the, the passage of the FAA Act in February of this year and the proposal to really increase the number of drones flying domestically. Well, Jennifer, or, I'm sorry, uh, Ryan, what's the uh, the physical height limitation? I mean, are these things going to be buzzing over our houses or are they going to be pretty far up in the air? 
Well, um, the generally speaking, um, it depends on the on the type of aircraft, but commercial aircraft have to be above a certain height. Um, and historically, drones have had to be below that height so that they wouldn't interfere with commercial aircraft um, around 400 feet. And so um, there is, for instance, an exception uh, to the general ban absent a waiver uh, by the FAA on drones if you're, say, a hobbyist and you're flying uh, a drone um, within line of sight, meaning you, you, you can see it at all times, uh, below 400 feet. Uh, and uh, and you're not doing it in a in a populated area, um, and so uh, those would be lower flying. But I think that the plan eventually um, is to actually integrate this technology into the general domestic airspace and have it have the ability to what's called sense and avoid, meaning that if it comes across another um, aircraft, uh, it will be able to to um, uh, understand that it's that it's in its path and and avoid it. Now that would be easier if the other modernizations that the FAA contemplates, for instance, the move from radar to GPS, uh, were to go through. Because if we move from radar to GPS, it's going to be a lot easier for these unmanned aerial vehicles, aerial systems, uh, to avoid commercial aircraft. Uh, at present, we rely on a system of radar, which will be actually the technology is much more difficult for a, for a drone in that case to avoid um, uh, a collision potentially. Um, and so, so for now, they're staying below a certain feet, but I think the plan eventually is for them to be fully integrated into the nation's airways. And just to get back on something um, Ryan said, so we have different types of drones that are flying in the United States right now. So as Ryan mentioned, um, the hobbyist drones are required to fly below 400 feet. What we've seen from some of the certificates of authorization we've got, we've received from state and local law enforcement is that some of them are authorized to fly drones a little bit higher that, than that, up to about 600 feet. But we also know that federal agencies are flying drones much higher than that. So, for example, Customs and Border Protection, um, a division of the Department of Homeland Security, currently has nine predator drones uh, that they use to patrol borders, and they're also using uh, sometimes to help out state and local law enforcement with, with regular law enforcement activities. And those are the same predator drones. They're non-weaponized, but they're the same drones that are being flown in, in Afghanistan and Iraq and that have been flown for many years now. Uh, so they're the size of small aircraft, regular airplanes, and they fly at the same altitude as regular aircraft. Something that, uh, looking at the I think you posted this, Jennifer. There's a there's a map on the on the EFF website that that shows sort of a Google map that that shows, I guess the the uh, the location of of the authorizations uh, uh, for domestic drones in the United States, and it and it pretty much covers uh, covers the country. Uh, and it's it's interesting to me looking at the the list that you've compiled of these authorizations, or a number of them are are. Uh, our law enforcement agencies, as you, as you pointed out, uh, it, it, what is the what what restrictions, if any, are there on, on how law enforcement agencies can use these things? I mean, can they can they be surveil surveying us uh, with with drones and, and us not knowing it? I think that's a really interesting question, and that's something we were trying to get at with our lawsuit against the FAA. We still don't have a lot of that information, unfortunately. Um, so, and there's two reasons for that. First, the FAA is their their mandate is to protect the safety of the national airspace. So they have not traditionally been looking into 
um, how aircraft is being used. Uh, and they're treating unmanned aircraft the same as they're treating manned aircraft. And, and they, the agency doesn't believe that it needs to get involved in these issues of privacy and surveillance. Um, so that's the first reason why we don't have that information. Uh, but the second reason is just that the FAA has so far, in response to our FOIA suit, has only released two lists of authorizations, and they're they really lack a lot of the detail that's pretty important to, to learn about how law enforcement are using these tools. Um, we have issued separate requests to a few different law enforcement agencies, such as the Texas Department of Public Safety and the Miami-Dade Police Department. And through those requests, we've learned that the agencies, kind of like Ryan mentioned, are required to fly their drones within line of sight um, they have to be flown by a pilot who's a licensed pilot, like somebody who could fly a manned aircraft, and they have to um, have an observer on the scene at all times as well. They also have to fly below a certain altitude, and they can't fly overpopulated areas. So it's an interesting restriction, especially in, a, in an area like Miami-Dade, um, where, you know, you have a very highly populated area, their certificate of authorization from the FAA says specifically that they're not allowed to fly over populated areas like downtown Miami and like over the beaches. Um, so it's, it's sort of questionable right now what the, the drones are being used for. But, of course, law enforcement would like to use them for any kind of a law enforcement mission, whether that's... Um, surveilling, uh, you know, a protest or whether it's to see on the far side of a building if a SWAT team is going into a building. Or the example that law enforcement uses a lot is uh, the ability to find a missing person. So if somebody gets lost in the woods or um, in some sort of a unpopulated area, you know, law enforcement thinks that that would be a good use of a drone. And Ryan, can you describe these drones for us? I mean, I, you know, as a as a kid, I flew planes with my dad, uh, you know, radio-controlled planes. Are we talking about the kind of things that are three, the wingspan is like three feet in diameter? What are we looking at here? Well, I mean, as, as Jennifer and I have both alluded, I mean, the, the, the truth is that there's a tremendous amount of variety. Um, as I think about a drone, um, which is a colloquial word for an unmanned aerial vehicle or, or aerial system, as the FAA refers to it, um, I think of something that has the, at least the potential for some autonomy. Um, so that could be autonomy exists on a spectrum. So it could be anything from sort of pointing and clicking uh, to where the drone, where you, where you want the drone to go and have it uh, fly to that place uh, or be able to land itself or maybe take some of the collision avoidance um, steps that we've been talking about. And so for me, the distinction between just a, a remote control uh, plane with a camera on it and a drone is, is actually that, that there be some uh, measure of autonomy. Uh, that said, there's a tremendous spectrum. Everything from uh, a, a drone that's as small as a hummingbird that was funded by the Defense Department uh, and has a camera on it, all the way up to uh, the Predator drones, which are you know the current Predator B, which is the military-grade drone, um, and, and beyond to, to the Global Hawk and to even larger um, uh, uh, drone technology. And so there's, a, there's quite an, an incredible range of size, uh, sophistication, uh, sensory apparatus. Uh, but I think the one thing that does link them together is that you know they're flying, uh, they're unmanned, uh, and they have some degree of, of autonomy associated with them. Ryan, I, I know that you wrote uh, at Threat Level Blog, at Wired's Threat Level Blog, about uh, this issue. And uh, one of your conclusions there was that, that there there is very little in American privacy law that would prohibit drone surveillance within our borders. 
Uh, I, I think that's what right. is the state I'm, of the yeah. law there. I mean, what 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 do you? How do you see the state of the law in it? Well, so generally speaking, um, there are two uh, trends in the law that suggest that that um, privacy law will not impose much of a hurdle to drone surveillance. One of them is the notion that you do not have a reasonable expectation of privacy as against the government um, in, in anywhere in public or viewable from a public vantage. And so if you're walking around the street in public, um, uh, you could be observed by a drone uh, without implicating the Constitution. Um, and also, if you were in your backyard, say you were growing marijuana in your backyard, um, a drone could likely uh, be able to spot that if it was in, in a public vantage, meaning including the, the nation's airways, right? Um, and there's been a, a complication to this in the recent United States v. Jones decision, which was the decision involving uh, following people around with a GPS device for a very prolonged period of time. Um, although as a technical matter, the justices decided that on the basis of you need a warrant to affix a GPS, GPS device to a car. But they did express concern over prolonged or dragnet surveillance um, uh, being used with what they call electronic surveillance. And as to whether that applies to drones is not clear, but that, that's a test case that we'll have to see. But another trend that I think is equally interesting, equally important, is the notion that you don't have a reasonable expectation uh, of privacy in contraband. So this is the idea that a dog may sniff your bag at the airport because all the dog does is alert to whether something to something illegal like a bomb or a drug. There's also cases saying that um, officers can field test a, a, a white powdery substance uh, with a stick that only reveals whether or not it, the powdery substance is cocaine and real, reveals nothing else about the powder. Um, and so this is this, this notion that's actually relatively strong in the law that says that um, as long as no human is seeing it and as long as all that's being detected is is contraband, uh, then you then you really can't assert a, a Fourth Amendment privilege or, or a Fourth Amendment defense. Um, and so the uh, how that applies to drones is that if, if there are very sophisticated sensors attached to drones, not only could they fly around looking for um, all kinds of transactions, hand-to-hand -hand transactions in bad neighborhoods, people having um, an unlicensed pool in their backyard, uh, they could also use... Um, sensory apparatus that humans simply don't have, thermal imaging, uh, uh, detecting scents, you know, like all kinds of really interesting um, uh, cutting edge but still existing uh, sensory technology. And if, and if the, the case could be made that as long as they're not, as no human is sensing this stuff, then all they uncover is an instance of, of contraband, then perhaps that would, that would also be allowed. And so the case to watch about that is the Jardinus case before the Supreme Court right now, which is a case involving the dog sniffing of a home. And many uh, courts that have looked at this issue of whether a dog can sniff a home for marijuana without a warrant have actually come down on the side of saying, yes, they may. It's a logical extension of the cases saying that, um, you can sniff a bag or you can sniff a car without a warrant using a dog. Um, and so my concern would be that we'd have drones that were flying around, not just looking at us in public, not just following us around, but actually able to sense things about our lives that a human couldn't and then alert police if something illegal comes up. And Jennifer, who's going to be flying these drones? I mean, is it is it uh, going to be my next door neighbor that can fly a drone over my backyard? Uh, can uh, somebody down the street or just somebody that just wants to put a drone up in the air and see what's around? Yeah, well, currently any of those people could be flying drones under the hobbyist rules. The drones are sort of, um, according to the FAA, classified a little like model airplanes. You don't need a license to fly a model airplane. It's the same with a drone. If you can 
um, put it up safely and keep it in an unpopulated area. And like Ryan said earlier, keep it uh, within visual line of sight and under 400 feet, you can fly a drone. Now you can't use it for commercial purposes. So for example, there were some real estate photographers down in LA that were getting these amazing shots of the giant homes in, in Bel Air and, and selling those to real estate agents. Um, and the pilots union reported them to the FAA as, as flying commercial drones or, or doing commercial flights of drones. And so they were shut down. Um, but currently, you know, if, if you're flying a drone for a non-commercial purpose and you can do it safely, you can put it up there. I will say, though, that um, in talking to people who do fly drones, uh, just the hobbyists, there's a, you know, in uh, the Bay Area, we've got a, a big DIY drones movement. And, and those people will tell you that it's actually pretty challenging to put a drone up in the air. You know, you're dealing with um, all the aeronautics and and Putting something in in a uh, you know liquid body like air is is difficult for somebody who doesn't have experience as a pilot. Can I jump in here and just say that you know um, it, it there's a there's a conflict and at least in my mind uh, in terms of what the policy should be toward drones because I think that drones are a potentially wonderful transformative technology particularly in the hands of of individuals. You can do some really neat stuff with it. It's very empowering. It teaches you um, uh, really interesting complex skills around. Uh, engineering and software, um, and so I, I want to protect uh, the ability of, of um, do-it-yourselfers to to uh, build these things and to experiment with them. I think that's a good thing, um, and I think that the amount of damage they can do from a surveillance perspective, at least, if not from from a, uh, a, a basically a um, risk of injury perspective uh, is pretty minimal. Uh, and so I think that we should be applying different standards and different scrutiny to the government's use of military or semi-military technology uh, as opposed to a, um, a do-it-yourselfer. And I think, I think Jennifer would probably agree with that. Definitely. What about the instance of citizens using drones to monitor government activities, such as police? And we've seen some uh, really interesting issues come up about people filming uh, the cops during an arrest or an activity like that? What if they did it from a drone? You know, it's it's funny. Um, I was just on a panel not too long ago with a few people who are flying drones, and the whole point of the panel was to talk about drones for journalism purposes. And I think that most people on the panel agreed that, that uh, drones weren't the best idea to use for monitoring the police, especially in like a protest situation, because the, the risk of flying them and running into somebody is pretty high, and that um, you know, we have a lot of good tools for that right now, and uh, and increasingly courts are saying that that the police are not allowed to censor, you know, the use of cameras to photograph um, interactions with the police. So we, most of us carry cameras around on our phones and our, our smartphones and our Blackberries, and um, and if we're talking about monitoring a protest situation to keep track of what the police are doing, we could put a weather balloon up and, and put a camera on it, um, keep it on a tether, and that might be easier to use than a drone at this point. Um, the drones, I think, have sort of captured the public's imagination for good or for bad. Um, but, you know, as we've seen from our the response that the FAA has given us so far to our FOIA lawsuit, they're actually not being used that much in the United States today. Now, with the FAA Act, 
Um, I think that their use will increase significantly in the next few years. Um, but currently, they're, they're just not being used that much for many reasons. We need to take a short break, but we will be uh, right back to, for, uh, to talk more about drones and privacy. Hi, my name is Kay Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of Clio. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now, how long does it take to move to the cloud, and is it a difficult process? No, I, with most cloud computing providers, moving uh, your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes, not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and running with most services in just a few minutes. And uh, even if you have an existing, uh, a legacy set of data that you want to migrate to a, a web-based practice management system like Clio, there's migration tools and migration services that we're able to offer to ease that process. So most firms can be up and running to the cloud in, less than, in the cloud in less than five minutes and can have their data imported uh, in a matter of hours or days. We've been talking to Jack Newton, president of Clio. Thank you so much, Jack. Thank you. And if you'd like to get more information on Clio, feel free to visit www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. It's the office calling again. Don't answer it. Why not? I'm listening to Legal Talk Network podcasts to get my CLE credit in West Legal Ed Center. Oh, yeah. I need to do that, too. Where do I find them? It's easy. Just go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and pick a program for CLE, click on it, and start listening. Or go to WestLegalEdCenter.com and choose from any of the Legal Talk Network programs available for CLE. That's perfect. The office can wait. Tired of all the headaches of running your law firm? Want to spend your time doing what really matters? Then you need PC Law. PC Law from LexisNexis is the legal industry's best-selling matter, billing, and accounting software. It has never been easier to manage your law firm and serve your clients. Get back to doing what matters to you. For a free trial, go to PCLaw.com slash radio. That's PCLaw.com slash radio. Or call us at 800-685-2161 today. We're glad you're listening to Legal Talk Network. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, too. You can advertise with us at Legal Talk Network and have your own commercial play in this podcast. Just give us a call anytime at 781-551-9960 or shoot us an email at admin at legaltalknetwork.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. Our guests today are Ryan Kahlo, Director for Privacy and Robotics for the Center for Internet and Society at Stanford Law School, and Jennifer Lynch, a staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Let's get back to our discussion on drones over the U.S. and privacy issues. Is there something that's less intrusive here? I mean, we're, we're essentially looking at military technology and civilian airspace. Is there something that we can use that would be like, for example, existing satellite imagery, which, as I see on Google Earth, is pretty darn good? I think that, you know, often um, uh, people ask about whether there's anything really unique about drones and why can't we use satellites and why can't we use uh, fixed cameras uh, that are already on many streets. Um, but I actually tend to think that there's a serious difference between those two things. I mean, for one, it's very difficult to follow someone with a fixed camera. You have to patch together multiple networks that might not even talk to one another. Um, also, only the very 
the most sophisticated satellites are capable of actually giving you a view of a particular point uh, at your command. Uh, generally speaking, they just they circle the Earth and they take pictures um, uh, according to patterns. And so um, really sophisticated satellites are capable of actually finding a, a point in time. Um, but again, it's prohibitively expensive for, for, to maintain or, or, or operate a satellite, and there's, and there's only so you know, many uh, organizations that are capable of doing it. Uh, compare drones, which are, you know, they can follow people very easily. I saw a demo of a, of a drone uh, built, you know, built by professionals here around Stanford um, that was able to lock in on a car and basically follow it autonomously with, with, with no problem. And as facial recognition technology improves, and assuming you can... Um, get over the problem of having to see someone's face at a very sharp angle, you could also imagine the deployment of, of facial recognition technology, not only by the government, but potentially by, uh, say, the paparazzi looking to fly around uh, L.A. to find Brad Pitt. Um, now, you know, these are, these are somewhat dystopian examples. Um, they're, they're pretty extreme. Uh, but I think that we need to bear in mind the full possibilities of surveillance as we, as we think about how to deal with this technology. I think the best thing we can do is... For the FAA um, or another entity uh, yet to be named, but hopefully the FAA, to actually take privacy into account as it certifies the use of drones, as it contemplates integrating drones into domestic airspace. Um, if we do that, uh, I think that there's a lot of benefit to be had. Um, but if we don't do it, I think that the backlash against drones, because as Jennifer said, they really have cop captured the uh, imagination of the public. Um, and if we don't get the privacy issues and security and safety issues right with drones, we're really not going to be able to benefit from this technology because people are understandably not going to tolerate uh, the widespread use of drones in, around their hometown. Well, is this new law, why, I mean, why was this new law enacted? Was it an attempt to, to put tighter restrictions on the FAA or, or to uh, loosen the restrictions on the FAA's ability to, to license and regulate drones? From what I've heard anecdotally, um, the, this was to definitely to loosen restrictions on drones. So it's, in the past couple of years, since the FAA started authorizing drone flights in the United States, from what I've heard from law enforcement and especially from drone manufacturers, they've been incredibly frustrated with the amount of time that the agency takes to process the applications for authorization. And so still, there are only about 300 authorizations issued every year to fly drones. And, and there are many different law enforcement agencies that are clamoring for authorization. So along with that, uh, you know, our wars are wrapping up overseas and all of the drone manufacturers that have cropped up in the last few years to support the military's um, wars overseas are now saying, well, what are we going to do with all this amazing technology that we have? Currently, one in three um, U.S. military warplanes is a drone. And so you can sort of see from those numbers that, um, that there's a lot of money to be had in drones. Um, and so from what I've heard anecdotally, um, the passage of the FAA Act in, in February, and this has been under discussion for a couple of years now, was really spurred by a combination of drone manufacturers, the military, law enforcement, and Congress people who uh, are getting pressure from their constituents, both the drone manufacturers, but also from um, their states that want to have some of these test sites built there. Um, to bring, you know, to bring industry and to bring drone flights back home. Well, we've just about reached the end of our program, and it's time to wrap up and get your final thoughts along with your contact information. So, Ryan, let's start with you. 
Sure. Well, I mean, again, I think that the the important take-home point here is that drones are a potentially wonderful transformative technology, but they're also has the potential for abuse and that we need to get these things right from the onset so that we can make use of the technology. And if people want to hear more about my work on this, they can read um, you know, my, my op-ed in Wired.com. Uh, and also I have an essay called The Drone is Privacy Catalyst in Stanford Law Review Online that people can check out, or they can follow me on Twitter at R-C-A-L-O. But thanks a lot for having me. I really enjoyed it. Great. Thank you very much for for that. And uh, Jennifer? Yeah, thank you also for having me on the show. This has been a lot of fun. Um, if people are interested in EFF's lawsuit against the FAA, um, I encourage them to check out our website where we'll be regularly posting updates. I'm actually going into court today um, to discuss the production schedule with the government attorney and with the, the judge in our case. And We'll hopefully get a, a schedule set and, and get the court involved in um, in requiring the FAA to to turn over this information a little bit more quickly than they have been doing. And how would our listeners reach out to you? Um, they can visit our website at www.eff.org. Yeah, and I would just add, uh, as I was saying earlier, there's a, the uh, EFF has a lot of information about uh, drones up on their website, so I would encourage our listeners to go look at that. Some interesting stuff there and uh, well worth checking out. Thanks so a lot to both now, of you. Yeah. <laughs> all we need now is an airport, Bob, and a, and a yeah. drone to go fly. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Yeah, thanks a lot to both of you. We really appreciate you taking the time to be with us today, and uh, it was a very interesting discussion, and you really uh, helped enlighten us on this topic. Thanks very much. Thanks again. Thanks. Very interesting discussion, Bob. What are your thoughts? Uh, well, you know, I, I think I I, I I hear what Ryan is saying, which is uh, that we have to understand that there is uh, this is a technology that has good applications and potentially uh, uh, onerous applications, uh, and we don't want to forget the good applications in, in the ways that we regulate it. I I tend to be somebody who worries uh, about uh, you know uh, government agencies and police departments having uh, unmanned vehicles uh, flying over our heads and peeking in our backyards. Uh, and uh, I would like to see there be tighter regulation of this, whether that comes from the FAA or, or through the courts. Uh, I don't know. I th- as I understand this act, the FAA has to uh, uh, enact some regulations at this point uh, and will be going through a, a regulatory process, and that's something they really should take into consideration. How about you? Well, yeah, and, and you know, obviously, if the police can use it, organized crime can use it to find out where the police are. So it's a double-edged sword, and uh, we really have to be careful about how uh, we regulate this and how we use it, because um, certainly we don't want to have drones dropping out of the sky onto freeways or homes or anything else like that. And it, uh, you know, beyond the privacy issues, there are some practical considerations to yeah. think about. Yep. Well, uh, Bob, it's probably time for us to wrap it up. We should remind our listeners that they can now get CLE credit through West Legal Ed Center for listening to Select Legal Talk Network podcast. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and click on West Legal Ed Center. You can also find all of our Legal Talk shows on iTunes. We also have an Android app where you can access all Legal Talk Network shows on your iPhone. We hope to have an iPhone app shortly, so check it out. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com. Well, it was a pleasure talking to you again, Craig, and look forward to another good show next week. We will see you then, Bob. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. 
Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.